We were dressed in sacks, and we were marched in there, and we were sold off to a student. From KJZZ Studios in Phoenix, it's Season 2 of Untold Arizona. The podcast. I'm Tiara Vian. Arizona is a unique place full of stories, folklore, and Wild West chicanery. KJZZ is celebrating Arizona with stories outside the usual news. When Casey Kuhn visited Ajo, Arizona, she found a story that was more than she could fit into a traditional radio news piece. In the old mining town west of Tucson, an arts community is now taking up residence in the old Curly School, and it's thriving. We're dedicating this episode to the characters keeping the historic building alive. Here's Casey Kuhn. I am taking you to desert town Ajo. I spoke with a dozen different Ajoites, some local and some who moved there from elsewhere, and even one who came from the other side of the world. A formerly segregated mine town school, it now houses artists. One of the first people I meet is Bobby Narcho. He's Tahona Otham, takes photos, does graphics, and makes music. He's called the Curly School home for almost a decade. It's got a lot of history here, and it's gorgeous, you know. It's, it's grand. It's one of these grand places, and it's very spooky, too. It's where he processes his photos, eats his meals, and writes his music. The dusty, upright piano he's playing in the old library is extremely out of tune. Outside, the second-story window faces out onto a short street that stops at the Ajo Town Plaza, a plaza flanked by two stark white churches. Narcho's sound is a little like if a David Lynch movie went west to the middle of the Arizona desert. There's also a little beauty in the darkness, too, so that's why I like to make this kind of creepy, beautiful music. I mean, there's something there's something that's that kind of draws you into it. Narcho grew up on the Tohono O'odham Nation just east of here. His tribe traditionally uses music to celebrate the bounties of nature, like the crops growing or the desert rain. A lot of his photography celebrates the modern ways Otham people incorporate long-learned techniques of living in this desert. It is your native land, and you grow up learning these things about your culture, the songs. Just living in the desert, too, you know about the resources that it offers, like the foods, you know, the swirl cactus fruit, the prickly pear, the choya buds. The Altham tribe have lived in the southeastern part of Arizona for thousands of years. They foraged as well as farmed. The Altham use saguaro fruit pulp and boil it down into a ceremonial wine. It was great living on the res. I really do miss it, and I'm not too far from home either. The name Ajo actually comes from a distorted version of the Altham word for body paint, Au Ajo. That's because the tribe mined the copper-rich area for its red oxide. And that copper-rich land is what drew Spanish and European settlers. It's basically a model town. The plaza and the school were a place where everybody was welcome. The owner of the mine was playing on that City Beautiful movement idea that your town center will civilize your population. Tracy Taft is a former executive director of the International Sonoran Desert Alliance, or ISDA. It's a group trying to preserve the historic parts of this post-mining town. 
It's a, a hidden treasure. The giant open copper mine pit closed in the 1980s. Now it sits above the town like an enormous curled up sleeping coyote. The town itself was designed like a bird with its wings unfurled. The plaza is the heart of the town with wings fanning out as the residential neighborhoods. The Crowley School is like the head and a lot of it is built in a Spanish colonial revival architect style. And it was all segregated. Lorraine Marquez Eiler is Tohono O'odham and helped found the ISDA. It's history for the people. It's a lot of memories. You know, we all went to school here. I went to school here. This is where we grew up. She grew up in the Indian village built closest to the mine. Then there was the Mexican town and the Anglo-American town. In a historical text compiled by Forrest Rickard, the segregation was because, quote, frankly, the view that democracy and the ideal of a universal middle class were exclusively Anglo-American. While the historical text goes into great detail about the Anglo-American town, none of the text describes the quality of the Mexican or Indian blocks. Marquez Isler remembers. When Indian Village was first set up, they put in little houses, one bedroom, two bedroom houses. Most of the families had eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13 kids. And you stuff them all in there, and that's what they did. But then not only that, they put outhouses out there. More like a hole in the ground. What can you say about that? Until a lot of things happened, a lot of accidents happened, kids falling in and whatnot. Luckily, the man behind us was chopping wood because we had, again, wood stoves, and heard the mother scream and chopped the thing down and jumped in and dragged the kid out. After that, the Indian village got indoor plumbing. The segregation followed her into school. On a tour of the giant echoey auditorium at the Curley School, Marquez Eiler reflects. So there's a lot of good memories and a lot of bad memories. One bad memory comes from freshman year of high school in this auditorium. It went above and beyond. We were dressed in sacks and we were marched in there and we were sold off to a student. How did that make you feel? Terrible. No, it was, it was totally embarrassing. She would be punished for speaking Altham in elementary school. A good memory comes from making her first skirt in home ec class. I made my first skirt, A-line skirt, and that I wore till it was almost in threads. <laughs> what color was it? Uh, white and red. White and red. Yeah, it was just kind of a checkered. I think about it now and I think, my God. <laughs> I wouldn't wear it now, but, but it was, I made it. On the day we meet, she's wearing an all-denim outfit, button-up shirt and jeans, with a necklace that takes up most of the real estate below the red floral bandana around her neck. The necklace medallion is painted with a scene of Native American women. The string is beaded with yellow, brown, white, and blue fetishes in the shape of birds. Lorraine, Tracy, and I are speaking together in the old library with the piano. Above the high-arched doorway reads a sign that says, silence is akin to learning. It still feels like a school, doesn't it? Before we go in the library... A short timeline. The mine closed in the late 80s. Most of the population left and the school was vacant. And in the 90s, the town voted to sell the Curley School. So what do you do with the 100-year-old historic school building that's not a school anymore? 
The ISDA, then headed by Tracy Taft, had a vision, turn it into affordable housing for artists. It just happens organically in the big cities, and could we sort of grab that strategy and use bringing artists to Ajo as a way to kind of jumpstart a new economy here because the town was, you know, horribly depressed economically at that time. Almost half of the people living in Ajo left between 1980 and 1986 when the mine and ore smelter closed. In 1990, less than 3,000 people lived there. Marquez Eiler says they asked the people who stuck around after the mine closed what the foundation should do to help, and they heard the same thing. Save the historic buildings, including the Curley School. And even though here in Ajo, the need for jobs and all that stuff, and businesses and all that stuff, there was one thing that always, always came up was save the Curley School. So the ISDA bought the building. It was remodeled for about $10 million to fit 30 apartments. Aaron Cooper is the current executive director of ISDA. The Curley School in particular was a really important initiative because the built environment in this community is imbued with memory and history um, in a way that's not true everywhere. The Curley School was designed in 1919 by Leslie Mahoney of local architect firm Fame Lesher & Mahoney. Lesher and Mahoney would go on to design the Orpheum Theater, original Phoenix City Hall, and state capitol buildings, along with thousands of other buildings across the state. The architect group would come back to Ajo several years later to design one of those all-white churches that flanked the Ajo Plaza. The original Curley School was financed almost entirely by bonds bought by the mining company. That cost about $2.5 million in today's money. In historical texts, it was considered a monument of pride for the entire community. Cooper says the design of the building is worth saving, both for the aesthetics and history, and as a future economic driver. Just having affordable housing in and of itself is a great thing, but it doesn't feed into the the bigger economic reactivation picture as much as, as bringing sort of a critical mass of creatives together. Cooper says over the last 10 years, more people have moved to Ajo, and while many are retirees, younger people are finding the charms of the small desert town near the Mexico border appealing. The artists living there now range from writers to papermakers, musicians, and jewelers. I think it's akin to cooking, that you've got to have the meat that's already there, but you want to have some spices that you bring in. There are some amazing people and resources and assets that are already here. But we definitely want to continue to attract in uh, additional individuals from the outside to say, what can you bring to the blend and to the mix um, that doesn't lose that character that's already here? The ISDA is also turning the former elementary school behind the high school into a conference center and inn. It's a revenue-generating effort for the group run by a separate nonprofit. It's where they invite two resident artists that live in Ajo up to four weeks in the Sonoran Arts Residency. This venture is, according to Cooper, critically important to the overarching narrative of the community. After touring the main building, Cooper takes me to visit the artists in residence. First up is painter Karma Henry from Southern California. Four paintings, ideas for some new ones, and uh, really appreciated the environment here. It's, uh, Henry's been here nearly two weeks. Her classroom-turned-art studio still has large chalkboards. That chalkboard has a handwritten welcome note to Henry, She's a tribe member of the Paiute. She shows me one of the paintings she did while living in Ajo. 
I'll try to describe it, but the best way to see it is going to kjzz.org. It has a gradient background of gray to cobalt blue in the middle and then back to gray at the top. In a layering effect, the gradient is intersected with stacked triangles that act like windows to ribbons of colors. Colors like purple and the color of mountains right before the sun dips below the horizon. The triangles show peaks of approximate mountains on the top, green mounds at the bottom, and stripes and swaths of muted golds and yellows. The triangles parallel design lines in the architecture. This is an architectural feature that's uh, here in town. And it's on the plaza, it's on the roof line of the hospital. And so I used it as part of a pattern here. And then this is uh, a loose landscape of the open mine. Her neighbor artist-in-residence is Teatiwe Drinrinwi, a native Maori basket weaver from New Zealand. Coming here was about bringing my skill set, bringing my knowledge of basket weaving and sharing that with the indigenous community here. The Tohono O'odham are renowned basket weavers with meaning baked into the designs and color of each handmade material. It's quite funny. There are s- similar ways in which we practice things back home which are very similar to here. His baskets are made of maka, a native flax material from his home. Drin Rui gifted the Curly School a basket with a step pattern of alternating black and white weaves going diagonally up. So this pattern is called potama in Māori, and it means the stairway to heaven. Uh, in our culture, it symbolizes your journey through intellectual, physical, and spiritual development. While the program hopes to woo young artists like Drin Rinrui, one major demographic is the retiree living on a fixed income. Like the next artist I meet, Arnold Alexander. He's a world-traveling army veteran originally from Los Angeles. He lives here now with his small rescue Pomeranian mutt, Marley. You want to talk to, right? Okay, all right. Alexander holds Marley like a boombox slung over his shoulders. The dog seems to enjoy the elevated perspective. Can I get a picture of you guys? Smile, Marley, smile. His apartment is behind the Curly School. It's sparsely decorated with the only light piercing, the stale smoke in the air from his cigarettes coming from the windows. There are several large prints of nature scenes, one of a bear eating salmon on the walls. The nature photography on the walls are his own. As soon as I f- saw a flower through the lens, I was hooked that this is it. Alexander hitchhiked around the world and has seen 20 different countries. Soon he'll be kayaking to take pictures of orca whales on the water in Alaska. Now he makes delicate paper and rues the fact he didn't get to study it while living in what he says is the paper-making mecca of the world. And believe it or not, I lived in Japan for like seven years and I never ever got into paper making at all. I missed out on that. But. His paper sits in a pile on a table near the door. Some of it has flowers or butterflies on it. So I call it kind of like therapy because uh, everything's pretty cool when I'm making paper. After Alexander's mother died, he found the Curly School on Craigslist nine years ago. I'm pretty lucky to have this place because you know, I was looking, I didn't know really what I was looking for. I knew I had to leave where I was. He thinks he'll spend the rest of his time here with Marley and his paper. Aho is home for Alexander now. It's also the birthplace of the Curly School manager, Vicki Tapp. She went to school here too. 
and remembers going on parades in the open area right in front of what's now Alexander's apartment. I remember walking across, and these were playgrounds. We would walk across with our little toy drums and our, you know, piccolos, and we would come over here and perform. It kind of makes sense her memories are about music. She's a local musician who spent some time in Los Angeles. Can you sing a yeah. little bit? Oh, no. Are you going to no. do that to me? There is no way. <laughs> Tap is also leading me on a tour of the artist's apartments. We stop at abstract painter Charlie Andrianoff's apartment. All right, I'll do that. Well, I'll think of that while you're seeing Charlie. We walk into an apartment even sparser than Alexander's. The only furniture that's not built into the apartment is an old office chair, several folding tables, and a large easel with a painting in progress on it. I really don't have any possessions that are so dear to me that I would say they're prized, you know. Material things are there to be used. While we take a look at some of his latest paintings, Vicky has to leave us. I'm losing you, I can see. And step by step, your love is slipping away from me. Gotta go. Thank you, Vicky. <laughs> you made my Thank day. Andrianov comes from Santa Fe after growing up in Brooklyn, which his family moved to after he was born in a refugee camp in post-World War II Germany. It's in New York where his artistic expression was formed. There were a lot of mural artists at the time, uh, very influenced by, uh, by that because most of the Latinos living in New York City at the time were Puerto Ricans. A lot of those guys were influenced by uh, Mexican surrealists, people like Chiqueros, Rivera, uh, Frida Kahlo, stuff like that. So I had, I had a strong influence in that regard. He studied under a famous artist who did portraits of President George H.W. Bush for the National Portrait Gallery. Andrianov practiced his studies of the human form with the most affordable models he could find, sometimes even a homeless man. That homeless man's portrait still hangs unframed in Andrianov's Curly School apartment. Yeah, he was a very distressed person. Now he paints mostly abstract, and the paintings go for thousands of dollars. I get very, very bored doing the same thing over and over again. So I need to have that feeling that there is some kind of progression in my work. But it's got to be a progression within yourself as well. Andrianov uses house paint for his work because it's cheap. The paintings kind of look as if you took a high-power microscope to a piece of granite or a spot of lichen. Nothing in nature is simply one color. A rock, even granite, you'll find like a multiplicity of colors. One painting features layered dots of dove gray over a cream background. There are four rows of what look like wide, haunting, circular wheels connected by pulsating black lines. It's now I realize describing abstract art via podcast is very difficult. Andrianov kind of describes it as a sentient stone. There's awareness beyond consciousness, what we know as consciousness. If you ever had an out-of-body experience, which I've had quite a few of, you'd know what I mean. I think I know what he means. The painting he's describing is one of the only ones he's done inspired by his Mongolian heritage. He's able to connect with Aho in this spiritual way. You know, I feel more at home here because most of the people in this town are people who have suffered a lot of history suffer from the results of being exploited, suffer from their land being exploited. So as an immigrant myself, I identify very much with, with their situation today. 
While this may not be Andrianov's original home, the desert is home to his neighbor, Wendy Allen. I walk down the pathway from Andrianov's apartment to Allen's. We sit together at a giant solid wooden table that used to be her bed. I used to live in New York and I used to have to sleep on this. No. Yeah. What? Yeah. Alan was born and raised in Phoenix with a mother who played viola professionally. Those artistic roots led to her creating textiles, prints, sculptures, and pottery. She often sells pieces at the Central Plaza at the local market. But there's a piece in her crowded apartment that's intensely personal. It's a miniature crypt made to hold her mother's ashes. We lived in Arizona for so long, and she always wanted a house with Blackstone porch. I went to the Flagstone place, told him what I was doing, help yourself. <laughs> it's shaped like a small brick home with a miniature table, pots, cactus, and windows. As she was making it, Alan started covering up the hundreds of tiny handmade and set bricks with more mud. I made 800 bricks. And literally built it brick by brick. Yes. And made the, you know, and made these windows and they're all, um, have the little, what do you call it, molding. You can see the bricks still. So I troweled it and I was troweling away inside and outside and my sister-in-law came over and she goes, stop! Until you made those bricks. Alan's entire apartment is covered in decorations, from the hand-printed Indian batik couch cover to the many sculptures on the wall. Her sculptures toe the line between abstract and symbolic. She says she listens to the radio when she draws or conceives ideas. While her art has evolved over the years with each move, Alan says living in the Curly School now feels like she's back in her native habitat. So it's sort of like coming home. The Curley School for Artists is home for dozens of people looking for inspiration in the desert. And it's also a way of preserving the past. ISDA director Aaron Cooper says the success of this preservation project is more indicative of the place it's always been a part of. A character of resilience is, I think, the singular most defining characteristic of this community. Tracy Taft, who helped spearhead the project, says she's seen the returns just by who's living in Ajo now. Homeowners have started to fix up their properties. Values have gone up. I don't think there's a real risk of gentrification here, but there are um, jobs and job programs and more social service programs, and younger people are moving to Ajo. And I think some of that began with the um, Curly School. Taft speaks about the town as a collection of groups and places coming together with a singular purpose, keep Ajo alive. Lorraine Marquez-Eiler, Oltham native, speaks about Ajo as a place with deep roots through its people. It was just an empty space. Now it's thriving. It's, uh, there's all kinds of activities. It's, it's just alive. It's one step at a time with a place that's making new history every day. That was KJZZ's Casey Kuhn, and that's it for this episode of Untold Arizona. Here's what's coming up next this season. The ones with the deepest holes were used for the hardest grains, and then the ones that are less indented were for corn and beans and things that were brittle. This high-energy torrent loaded with cobbles and boulders followed quite a different path than today. 
This episode was produced by me, Tiara Vianne. The stories were edited by Al Macias, Michel Marisco, Chad Snow, and Carrie Fair Snyder. Our digital editor is Sky Shout. There are pictures, videos, maps, and more at untold.kjzz.org. Do you have an untold Arizona story of your own? Drop us a line on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram using the hashtag untoldarizona. And check out our Facebook group where you can connect to more people who love a good Arizona tale as much as you do. If you haven't heard Season 1 or our other podcasts, check out podcast.kjzz.org. Find us on iTunes or search for KJZZ wherever you get your podcasts. If you liked this episode, help KJZZ tell even more great stories. Head over to donate.kjzz.org to make your gift of support. This is a KJZZ production. I'm Tiara Vianne, and thanks for listening.